Uh, we've used Ephesians 6.18 as a text scripture, a beginning point for, uh, for the whole series. So we want to do that again again. We want to do that again tonight. Ephesians 6.18, Paul, after telling us to put on the armor of God and how to be strong to come to the knowledge of who we are and the different pieces of the armor is about knowledge of who we are in Christ. He says, gives us the information about why we want to have the armor of God on or, or what we want to take with us into prayer. Verse 18, he said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. As we've mentioned uh, numerous times, other translations say praying always with all kinds of prayer or different manner of prayer. Well, we'd know that if we didn't have any other translations just from the King James. Praying with all prayer doesn't make sense unless there are different kinds of prayer. If there's just one kind of prayer, he would have said praying and making supplication uh, for all saints in the spirit. So we understand that he's talking about different kinds of prayer. And we've looked at some of those different kinds. Tonight we want to look at another one. Praying always with all manner of prayer, different kinds of prayer and supplication in the spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplications for all saints. Now I also want to remind you of Philippians chapter 4. And verse 6 that we looked at uh, over the last few weeks as well, talking about uh, some specific kinds of prayer. Paul said, be careful for nothing. Or another translation says, be anxious or uh, be anxious for nothing. Don't fret about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Notice he attach, attaches supp- uh, thanksgiving to prayer and supplication. With prayer or by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul begins t- writing to Timothy about his prayer life. He said, uh, exhort, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I want you to notice that both Philippians 4, 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about giving of thanks as being a part of your prayer life. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, in, in just giving you that title, I've got a problem with that because Thanksgiving is a lifestyle, not a prayer. For example, turn back with me to, um, uh, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Colossians chapter 3, for example. I've got the wrong reference. It's, uh, well, let's just, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Notice the singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That would have to be an an aspect of praise or thanksgiving. And those terms are really interchangeable throughout the the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about uh, the the characteristics of being spirit-filled or living a spirit-filled life. Verse 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now he adds something to it, another dimension to it. Verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll remind you also of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says, uh, uh, beginning in verse 17, it says, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I really should have started in verse 16 where it starts off with rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and then in everything give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So thanksgiving or giving praise to God shouldn't just be a type of prayer. It should be a lot more than that. It should be a lifestyle. However, we do see some things about thanksgiving and associated with prayer 
that, uh, that caused us, caused me at least, to want to attach it or add it to this series. Turn back with me to, to Acts chapter 16. Let's look at an example of what Paul is writing to the church. You know, I believe if you preach something, you ought to live it. Don't you? Well, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Acts 16 tells us about his first trip to Philippi. It says Philippi was the chief city of Macedonia, and that's where he is at this point in time. It tells us that um, we'll start reading in verse 16 to get the import of the story. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Another translation says she was fortune-telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. I guess God's not interested in the devil's advertisement. What she said was true. It's not just a matter of what you do, but how you do it, I guess, huh? And when her masters, verse 19, saw that the hope of their gains was gone, their money-making operation was ended, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and, and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them, Paul and Silas, into the inner prison and made their feet fast with stocks. Sounds like a pretty rough situation, right? Verse 25, and at midnight. Now, I believe this was literally midnight, but it could be representative of the midnight circumstance or the midnight hour of your crisis, whatever you're in the middle of. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God And the prisoners heard them. Notice the Holy Ghost is faithful to show us that they didn't just pray. And please understand that that it would have been very easy to say, and Paul and Silas prayed. Just in a general way, Paul and Silas prayed, and then God did something. He could have related the rest of the story. But the fact is, the Holy Ghost wanted us to know that Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Now that sounds a lot like Philippians 4, 6 that we just read. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or fret about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That sounds like exactly what they've done. They prayed and added thanksgiving to it. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. He goes on to tell about how the jailer, even the jailer wound up getting saved in his household through this situation. Now, how did Paul know this? How did Paul know to pray and give thanks? How did he learn? Turn back with me earlier in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the day of Pentecost and Peter preaching. The Holy Ghost is poured out. They begin to, um, they, they see cloven tongues of fire sitting on each of them. They begin to speak with other tongues. They spill out into the street and, and uh, Peter begins to, to uh, preach, tell about this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. The people wind up, um, verse 37, now when they heard this, Peter's preaching, 
When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, they wanted to act on Peter's preaching about Jesus being raised from the dead. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, I want to submit something to you right now, bring something to your attention. That's all Peter knew at that point in time. That's all he knew. He didn't know Paul's revelation about uh, becoming the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't know anything about who we are in Christ. He knew how to get saved. He knew that the Holy Ghost was given to mankind. That's all he knew. And 3,000 people get saved as a result of it. it. It amuses me sometimes when people refuse to go out and tell people about Jesus because they're afraid they don't know enough. You know more than Peter knew, and he got 3,000 people saved the first day. Uh, thank you for your enthusiasm there. Verse 39, for the promises unto you and to your children and to all those that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You know it's... um, it's an interesting thing to me. The church, the early days of the church, the beginning of the church was primarily uh, Jewish. Most of these 3,000 people, if not all, maybe all of them, that got saved on the day of Pentecost were Jews who were there for the feast. doesn't make sense you'd be in Jerusalem at the time of the feast unless you were a Jew for the, there for the feast. And so anyway, we know that uh, the church was predominantly Jewish in the beginning. And I believe that it was the Jewish heritage that caused them to understand some things from the beginning. They had a heritage of a history of the law and the prophets and some things that they understood and things that they knew from the Old Testament that made the difference in how the church began. For example, turn back with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Here's a story we use a lot of times, but I think it bears mention in this setting. Second Chronicles chapter 20 is the story of Jehoshaphat, who's king of Judea. And he's beset upon by five different kings. There's a coalition of armies. Five different kings have joined together and banded their armies. And they're coming together for the purpose of destroying Judea. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And it says, we'll just start in verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Ammon, or Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them others besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they be in some place which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judea. Or not Judea, all Judah. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. Now this word seek, or literally, if you look it up, this word seek in the Hebrew literally means worship. 
He set himself to worship God. Or we might say in a general sense, now, we could split hairs and, and, and talk about the definition, but the different definition or different meanings between praise and worship and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and frankly, I don't care. Because people that, people, some people know a little bit about praising God, don't know much about worshiping God. Worshiping God is, is um, really getting in his presence just because you want to spend time with him. Praising God is more about magnifying what God has done. And so there is a difference. But very few people that praise God, hardly anybody that will worship God, don't already praise him. And so I don't, think the, I don't think the important thing is to try to figure out the difference in the words and, and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of different words that are used for, that are translated worship and praise and, and that kind of stuff. Some of it gets kind of strange sounding, to be honest with you. One word used for worship is to jump up and twirl around like a, you know, spin around like a top. Well, we haven't had one of those services in a long time. <laughs> you know? But, but notice that they set themselves to seek God's face. It's interesting to me that worship is identified as seeking God's face. Worship is identified as seeking God's face. Now, in this situation, they're facing a real crisis. So the Bible is going to tell us, give us a principle for uh, how to, to worship God or how to seek God's face in the middle of a crisis. But hold your finger here and let me, let me draw your attention to something else. And that is over in Acts chapter 13. I'm sorry for running you back and forth. Old Testament and New Testament. And if you don't want to look at it, that's fine. I'll read it to you and you can make a note of it and look at it later. But in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there were at the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, such as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered, verse 2, this is what I want you to see. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. And then it tells how they were sent of the Holy Ghost to go into the next place. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. What is ministering to the Lord? Ministering to the Lord is just worshiping God. Now there in Acts chapter 13, they weren't in a crisis. They're just ministering to the Lord for the sake of worshiping God. And in the midst of that, or as a result of that, maybe that's a better way to say it, as a result of their ministering to the Lord and fasting. And, and by the way, fasting is mentioned in both of these, both of these uh, stories, Acts 13 and Second Chronicles 20. Let me, without going into a teaching on fasting, let me just tell you, fasting doesn't change God. Fasting do, do, doesn't make God hear you more than he would hear you without fasting. Fasting has no impact on God whatsoever. Fasting is about you setting aside some natural thing. We usually think of it as far as food is concerned. And most of the fasts that are proclaimed in the Bible or talked about in the Bible have to do with food. But you can fast a lot of other things besides food. There was about a three-year period where the Lord told me, don't go to any meetings unless I tell you to go. Well, that was the fast. And there was something that came out of it as a result. I gained a, um, a, well, I just took a step or two further in the Lord than I would have otherwise. Because I used that time that I would have gone to the meetings and, and for the purposes that I would have gone and that kind of thing. I used that to focus on the Lord instead. And I gained a greater understanding about being led by the Lord and so forth. So there's a lot of things that you can fast. I remember Jeannie Wilkerson was talking about one time that the Lord told her to fast fellowship for a year. She didn't see anybody for a year. 
She didn't go out. She didn't, uh, she didn't go out for the purpose of seeing anybody. I mean, she went to the store and took care of things like that. But she said the Lord specifically told her to do that, to separate herself, take the time that she would have spent with other people or things like that and spend it on him or with him. So fasting, we normally think of as, uh, uh, as food, like I said. But fasting could be any number of things. But a fast only works is if you, ta- if you take the time that you would have done used use for the other thing, whatever the other activity was, and spend that time with God. For example, if you fast food, but uh, fast uh, eating or something like that, but you're not spending the time with God, that's just called a diet. That's not a fast. A lot of people think that they're giving up something. That's what uh, I always get a kick out of Lent. People talk every year, Christians, I'm not talking about Catholics, Christians, talk about what are you giving up for Lent? Well, what difference does it make? They're not going to spend the extra time with God, so what difference does it make what they're giving up? Might be a good exercise for the flesh, but it has no spiritual benefit. So the fast doesn't have anything to do with God having heard them. The fast may have something to do with their um, commitment or dedication to hear from God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, because they're in a problem, Acts chapter 13, just because they want to hear from God and want to spend time with him. But in both cases, God speaks. In the Old Testament, God is going to tell Jehoshaphat what to do and how to defeat his enemies. In Acts chapter 13, God says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I've called them. In other words, I've already called Barnabas and Saul for a specific work, but now it's time to send them out to do it. Worshiping God creates an atmosphere for God to speak whether you're in a group or you're by yourself okay back to second chronicles chapter 20 Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek or worship the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea or I'm sorry Judah I keep calling it Judea it's all Judah and Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord notice why they're worshiping God they're worshiping God because they need help that must be an okay thing to do then Not only is it an okay thing to do, I would say that it's a recommended thing to do. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, okay, so now we're going to see what him worshiping God is all about. He's going to give us an example of what worshiping God. We know the end of the story. God comes through and God delivers them. So here's an example of worshiping God in the middle of a crisis that works. Here's what he said. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, that sounds like a strange way. I I would submit to you that most Christians would say that that's an arrogant way to start off seeking God, worshiping God, or even praying. But that's his opening line. Aren't you God in heaven? And rulest thou not over the kingdoms of the heathen? And in your hand is there not power and might so that, there is, so that none is able to withstand thee? It almost like, it sounds like he's challenging God. Somebody made a statement one time. I don't know who to credit the, the, the statement to. I've heard it from several people through the years, so I don't know who, who originally said it. But someone once said that the most effective kind of praying is argumentative prayer. It's almost like you argue a case with God which proves that you know what your rights are. I can tell you from experience, the most ineffective prayer is a begging prayer. If those worked, the church would be full of power and have all their needs met. Right? 
So it sounds like he's challenging God. Aren't you God in heaven and don't you rule over the kingdoms of the heathen? And isn't there hand, uh, power in your hand to do whatever you want to do so that nobody can withstand you? Verse 7, art thou not our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend forever, which is them, by the way. Didn't you give us this land? And they dwelt therein, our forefathers dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, if when evil comes upon us as with sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for your name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. Now, if you go back and look at Solomon's dedication of the temple, that's basically Solomon's prayer. When he dedicated the temple, he said, now, Lord, here's what we're doing. We're putting your name on this place because you directed us to build it. And because your name is in this place, when we're in trouble, if we come to this place, we expect you to hear and help. And that's when the glory of God filled the temple. The glory of God came as a result of people lifting up their voices in one accord, but not only the, the, the singing and the praising, but because they identified we're using this place as a sign that we're yours and we expect you to be for us too. And God filled the temple with the glory of God. Now notice something else. Notice he said, the, the way that it's stated, he said, your presence is in this place for your name is here. In other words, wherever the name of God is, or in our case, the name of Jesus is, that brings on the presence of God. We don't have a temple that we go to. Jerusalem, or, uh, Israel had one temple in Jerusalem, many synagogues, but one temple in Jerusalem that had been dedicated by Solomon until it was destroyed by their enemies, rebuilt later on, but not in the same glory or in the same uh, splendor. But the, the point is very simply this. You get the same results with the name of Jesus because that's the presence of God just as much as the, the temple of Jerusalem, just as much as Solomon's temple. But it still sounds like it's a challenge, doesn't it? Verse 10, And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. I want you to notice something else. They didn't start off with their problem. They started off magnifying God's power. Now, God, aren't you the one that's in charge here? Can't you do something about this? I think a lot of times people start off with the problem, and because their problem is first and foremost on their mind, their problem winds up bigger in their eyes than God is. All these verses that sound like there's a challenge to God, it's saying, wait a minute, we've got promises. We're the seed of Abraham. He's your covenant partner, so we are too. We've got promises of your power. Your power hadn't, hadn't died out any, has it? Didn't you tell us that you would do certain things for us? They're magnifying God. Verse 11. Oh, verse 10, he even says, by the way, it's their fault that they're coming out against us because you wouldn't let our forefathers destroy them a long time ago. I love that. Behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade. Behold, I say, verse 11, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. Now, folks, if there's anything in this prayer that needs to be underlined or circled or highlighted or whatever you do in your Bible, that's the word. Thy possession. This is not our land. This is your land. You gave it to us, and so we possess it. 
but this is yours. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible says that Jesus purchased healing with his blood. Jesus purchased prosperity and well-being with his blood. He purchased righteousness with his blood. Those things belong to you, but they're God's. And when the devil tries to bring sickness to you and me, he's trying to cast us out of what Jesus has purchased. It's God's possession. So there is a New Testament application to these prayers. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, will thou not judge them? Here's the first thing. He's already said several things, really important things to set the foundation for this prayer. Now he's going to ask for something. O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Aren't you going to do something about this, Father? They've laid out several reasons why God should do something. Not the least of which is because God made promises. You said you'd do this. Now they ask, won't you judge them? We can't do it on our own. We don't even know what to do. Folks, I I commit this verse to memory. Because there's so many times where I don't know what to do and I'm not able to do it anyway. That seems to be a good place for God to help you. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeiel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. you got to put up with all those names. No wonder God's willing to use you. So the Spirit of the Lord comes on this guy in the midst of the congregation, and he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this battle. I'm sorry. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours but God's. Now that would be the place to have a party, wouldn't it? But he's not through talking. He says tomorrow. Go down against them. In case you don't know where they are. They'll come up by the cliff of Ziz. And you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now let me ask you a question. Why, if God can do anything, why doesn't God say, sleep in tomorrow? Because I got this handled. That's the way we want it to be, isn't it? We want the Spirit of the Lord to come with the answer, and we want that answer to be, don't worry about it. You don't have anything to do with this. This is going to be me and all me. And very seldom is that the way God works. The Bible says God prospers the work of your hands. God, the Bible says God will do things as a result of you stretching forth your hands. That's when he shows up. So he tells them, you've got a part to play in this. You go out tomorrow against them. But don't worry, the battle's not yours. Well, I can imagine that that's a happy group that night, wouldn't you think? We all feel good when God speaks and brings us the answer and we just get so charged up and it's just wonderful. But do we always feel the same way in the morning? Not so much. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, they've been worshiping already, but now they're worshiping him for a different reason. They were worshiping to begin with, find out what are we going to do? 
Now they're worshiping because God has spoken. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Folks, I would submit to you that it's easy to praise God when the answer is in front of you. Everybody's excited. Everybody feels great. They're inspired by the presence of God or whatever the case is. It's a joyous time. It's easy to praise God in those times. And I don't know about you, but I want those times to last. I mean, when I, when I am wake up in the next morning or something like that, I try to get that feeling back, don't you? And it's not always there. Verse 20, next morning, And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. Great advice, how? Now, folks, as I said before, the early church knew some of these things because of their Jewish heritage. This goes back to the beginning of God's covenant with Abraham. Jehoshaphat knows. Jehoshaphat's hearing the answer, and he's probably thinking all the time, no matter what everybody else is thinking, no matter what everybody else is praising God about, he's probably thinking tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. He's the leader. Leaders look ahead. He's thinking tomorrow before anybody even considers what it's going to be like in the morning. So he's ready. Tomorrow morning comes, and so he says, we heard the word of the Lord yesterday. God said the battle was not ours, but his. He'd take care of it. So believe in what God said. Believe his prophets, so shall we prosper. But that sounds good. How do you do that? Notice how he did it. Notice what it says. When he had consulted with the people, that means after when he spoke to the people, it's not like he's consulting with them to get advice. When he consulted with the people, means after he spoke to the people to believe in the, in the Lord and his prophets. When he had consulted unto the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord. And that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. And to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Now can I ask you a question? Why didn't God tell him to do this the day before? Why didn't Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of whoever else. Why didn't Jehaziel say, okay, here's what God is saying. Here's the word of the Lord unto you. But now tomorrow when you go out against them, make sure you have your singers out front. Why wasn't that part of the instruction of God? Because that's always our choice. What we do with what God says is always our choice. And what we do with what God says determines whether what God said is going to come to pass for us or not. God gives you the answer. And he gives you the opportunity to act on it if you will. Verse 22. And when? Everybody say when. That's our question, isn't it? When is this going to change? When is my body going to straighten up? When, is my fi- when are my finances going to straighten up? When is my life situation or circumstance going to change? When is this going to happen? Please notice the Bible tells you some things about when. And when they began to sing into praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. It tells how they all started fighting against each other. When they came to the armies, it took them three days to carry off all the stuff. 
Notice again verse 22. And when they began to sing and to praise. This is the reason. This principle is the very thing that Paul is telling us about in, in Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. That's part of what they told uh, God said here. Part of what the Spirit of the Lord came upon uh, Jehaziel to say. Don't be afraid of them. Go out against them tomorrow. Don't be afraid. The battle's not yours. God will fight for you. So he said, be careful for nothing. Don't fret or be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Thanksgiving has to be attached to prayer in order for prayer to work. But thanksgiving is not supposed to be just attached to prayer. It's supposed to be a part of our lives. Now, when are we the most apt or likely to praise God? When we focus on what he's done. When what he has done for us is fresh in our memory or fresh in our, in our experience, right? Well, then what is our job? To keep what God has done for us fresh in our memory and fresh in our experience. That's why praising God and giving thanks to God is supposed to be a lifestyle. Because unless you keep it fresh, it will leak out. I don't know about you, but every day is not a miracle for me. I may have to remember the last week's situation. I may have to remember the last time that I prayed and God gave me an answer about something. But it's our responsibility to keep it fresh. And the people that live spirit-filled lives are the people that are keeping it fresh. The people that are giving thanks unto God in every situation are the people that are keeping their experience with God, their relationship, and their fellowship with God current. You guys are just full of amens tonight, right? It's true, isn't it? And when they began to sing into praise. Do you realize the implication is if they had not sung in praise, what God had said would happen would not have come to pass? We certainly can't assume that it would have otherwise. Can we? The Holy Ghost is very specific about saying when the thing took place and when they began to sing into praise. That's when the Lord set up bushments. That's when they set ambushments. Isn't that exactly what Paul and Silas did in prison? In Acts chapter 16. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed. And sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. It's exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did. This is the Jewish history. Because all throughout their history. When they praise God. God shows up on their behalf. But the modern day church. Us being a Gentile church gets away from that sometimes. I know that some of the greatest moves of God we've had hit the church. And, uh, and, and a lot of these we had when we were real small. Uh, the building we had over at, uh, off of Rockfield uh, and Watney. The, um, uh, we'd have, it was long before we ever started healing school or anything like that. But sometimes on a, uh, I think we did them mostly on Sunday nights. But there were, there were a lot of Sunday nights that we'd get together and we'd have just what we called believers meetings. And, and basically what that amounted to is we just come together and worship God. Man, we had some healings take place. Nobody ever prayed for anybody. Nobody ever touched anybody, laid hands on them or anything like that. We'd have all kinds of things take place. All kinds of stuff. Just from worshiping God. A lot of times we think that we've, especially us faith people. So many times faith people or so-called faith people think that we've got to work the formula, work the formula, confess, 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 confess. A lot of times your confession just needs praise added to it. 
That's what it says with Paul and Silas in Acts 16. At midnight they prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. I wonder what would have happened if they would just prayed and not praised too. Again, we can't assume that they would have gotten the same results. We can speculate maybe they would have, but we don't know for sure. What about you? I wonder if your results would be different if you'd add praise to it. We're going to follow the Bible pattern. We're going to have to. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Paul knows the story of Jehoshaphat. Paul knows the Old Testament. He had the training of the rabbis, and the rabbis had to memorize what we know of as the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. That, every time I say that, that just sounds like an impossible task to me. How do you memorize that? But they did. They had to. I think it's one of the reasons Paul was chosen by the Lord because of his background, because of his training, his education, and his, uh, uh, his rabbinical training. He knew. And so when the Holy Ghost started talking to him and showing him the, the New Testament application or the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, man, this guy became a powerhouse. So he knew. He knew from his history what the pattern is. The pattern is to pray, get God's direction, and then thank him for the answer. Because God comes through time after time after time. I remember Brother Hagin telling a story about a young evangelist. He was uh, ministering for a pastor friend of Brother Hagin's, and the pastor friend is the one that told him the story. And um, uh, they were in the midst of a, a week-long revival, and like I said, just a young preacher that was there, and, and uh, uh, the, the pastor was really kind of doing him a favor, helping him get started in ministry. And something happened. There was some call that came in, and the pastor had to leave. And so he left uh, his wife kind of in charge, uh, overseeing the, the meetings, making sure that everything was taken care of and, and that kind of stuff uh, with this uh, young minister. And uh, while the t- during the time that the pastor was, had been called out of town, there was somebody in the church that uh, uh, called the, the parsonage looking for the pastor, found out he was gone. So the pastor's wife took the call. And so they went up, wound up going over to the house and making a visit. And, and apparently it was some kind of epileptic fit or some kind of thing like that because this uh, uh, younger, it wasn't a child really, but uh, uh, adolescent was, uh, was in the bed and, uh, and they, they went in and, and of course there's some deacons there, there's a pastor's wife there, there's a young minister there and everybody kind of deferred to the young minister out of uh, courtesy because he's kind of taking the pastor's place in his absence and this young minister said that he did everything he knew to do. He prayed every prayer he knew to pray. He, he, he said everything he'd ever heard anybody else say. He rebuked. He, you know, he, he just did everything. He pulled every lever and pushed every button, did everything he could think to do. Well, after that, they were all standing around the bed, and, and nothing had happened. Nothing had, had transpired. This um, adolescent, a young, young boy, I think it was, was uh, going through this fit, having this little fit of some, some type. And they couldn't do anything. They laid hands on him. They rebuked the devil. And nothing was working. And all of a sudden, the pastor's wife just started picking up a little song of praising God. Just on her own. Well, it, I don't know if you've ever been around people that do that or services where that starts happening. But it kind of gets off on you. And so, one by one, around the, around the bed, the whole room started praising God. Well, after a few minutes of praising God, all of a sudden, this uh, fit, this epileptic fit or whatever it was, ceased. And so now they're really rejoicing because, you know, God has done a great work. And, and uh, so it kind of quietened down a little bit. And so they're standing around talking to the to parents that are there. And the parents are so grateful and that kind of stuff. But then the, the uh, young boy begins to have another fit. He goes into this spasm thing again. 
Well, here's the young minister. He does the same thing. He rebukes, he exhorts, he prays, he cries, he does everything he knows to do. Exhausts his repertoire of what, it, what might work, and nothing's, nothing's working. So they kind of got quiet again, and once again, the pastor's wife started picking up this little song. Just a little, you know, little, they weren't singing a song. They were just, everybody started praising God on their own. Started going around the room. Finally, the whole room is, is praising God. Power of God came back on that boy, and this time he was, the, the fit stopped, and he was perfectly and permanently healed from that point in time. Well, does that mean prayers don't work? That means prayers and thanksgiving works. I think so often, the, the, at least the modern-day church, in my experience, so much of the modern-day church is just praying over and over and over again, begging God to do this, begging God to do that, and they never stop to praise God because His Word says is, the answer is theirs already. I, I've been impressed here lately about uh, what the Bible says about the exceeding greatness of His power that works in you. If it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and the greatest display of God's power ever recorded in Scripture, what more do you need? There's nothing more than any of us need. That's why the Bible says that we're filled with His fullness, literally filled up to the full with all the power of God. That means we have every bit of power that's ever going to be necessary for any situation you and I encounter. Well, why are we looking from God, for God to do something from heaven then? Why don't we start recognizing the power comes from within? Healing power comes from inside, not outside. Delivering power comes from inside, not from outside. Well, how do you access that? All I know is at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. All I know is when Jehoshaphat set his face to seek the Lord and prayed a prayer challenging God to do good, to make good on his promises, that God gave the answer. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said, Ambushments. I wonder if God's still in the ambush setting business. I have to believe that he is. I have to believe it is. There's got to be something about you and your life and what God has done for you that you can find something to praise him for. It's up to us to seek it out and find it. It's up to us to keep it fresh enough so that our praise is real. Now, the Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. Don't get me wrong. We've all had the, I know that we've all had the same experience that sometimes praising God is work. Because the last thing we feel like doing in the middle of a battle is praising God. So there's a sacrifice of praise. Let us offer the sacrifice of praise continually unto God, the Bible says. Well, that works too. Because then you're, sacri- you're praising God by faith, not because you feel something, but because you know this is the answer. You know God is your help. You know God's word is the, the solution. It still works. Praising God always works. Always works. The Bible says of the Old Testament that the, the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Um, that meant when people got together and praised God, God would show up. It doesn't work that way under the new covenant. God's inside you. But because God's inside you and praise comes from inside, that's why our praise should be even more valuable and more effective. Because God it activates the power of God we already have. The exceeding greatness of his power. The exceeding greatness of his power. Whatever you're facing, folks, God's got the answer for it in his word. But we're in the same situation as Jehoshaphat and the, and the uh, people of Judah. Just because the answer says, or just because the answer is declared in the word, doesn't mean the answer is going to work for you. There's still tomorrow where you have to go out against your enemy. How do you go out against yours? 
How do you face your situations? Well, we know one way that works. They went out singing and praising. And that's what caused God to turn the thing around. That's when the tide was turned. That's when God set ambushments. Amen. Why don't we stand up and praise God for a minute? Hallelujah.